and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast today. Very excited to introduce you to my guest, Christopher Keevil. He is an ordained Zen priest and senior Dharma teacher in the single flower Sagna. Now, before he became a Zen priest, he was a carpenter and a house builder and a musician and a dance caller in the Irish and New England folk traditions. And he actually lives fairly close to me. He's in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So um, I was out there, I think before COVID hit, and I found this really cool book barn, book place that I went to. We were traveling around Connecticut. It was a lot of fun. But um, he's going to be the first Zen priest that I have ever spoke to, so I'm pretty excited about that. He's been practicing Zen since 1991 and teaching since 1998 in the lineage of his teacher, Zen master Bo Mun, and he's also known as George Bowman, uh, who is the Dharma heir of the Korean Zen master, Sung San. Sung San. Song song. <laughs> I practiced it three times before we started, but um, and Christopher is also the managing director and founder of Wellspring Consulting, a national firm that helps nonprofit leaders develop strategy for the future in areas such as education, health, social, social justice, and the environment. And he was also previously a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, which uh, is an international management uh, consultancy. So, Christopher, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you. Yeah, so, and I also forgot to mention, one of the reasons why you're on here, too, is you're also the author of a book called Finding Zen in the Ordinary. And uh, for those of you who are watching, uh, you guys can watch us at Path 11 TV uh, for free, is where we do the video podcasting. Um, Christopher, would you happen to have a copy of your book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here's the copy of the book here. Okay, it makes me hungry. <laughs> There's like this beautiful uh, piece of bread with sesame seeds on it. And I look at it, it just like reminds me of this great roll that I would get at this deli when I was younger. And that came from up from New York City. So every time I look at your book, I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. And it makes me want to go right into the book. So anyway, yeah, so welcome. So I'd like you to just, you know, let our listeners know a little bit about your journey. I mean, how do you go from being a carpenter and building houses and then all of a sudden you're now a zen priest oh yeah well i um uh grew up in massachusetts and uh now live in connecticut i think in my early years i felt a strong uh draw to spiritual matters uh to uh my grandmother was a minister uh my mother uh got involved in quakerism when i was in high school and i used to go to quaker meeting and I was a counselor at a Quaker summer camp where we'd have Quaker meeting every morning, which is sitting in silence in a circle and letting the spirit arise and speaking from that space. Um, but in my 20s in college, I found it a very disorienting time. I found that I uh, didn't really know what the purpose of my life was. I was struggling to try to have a sense of meaning. And I didn't feel that the uh, traditions that I'd been involved with uh, spiritually were quite uh, hitting the spot for me. So I I got to a place where I figured I should find someone who I, I could really learn from here, uh, a teacher 
that had practiced for many years. And I was um, in uh, Cambridge at the time. Uh, I was working in the Boston area and went to the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And uh, it was in 1991, and there was a, a, a meditation that I participated in. I noticed during the meditation that the uh, leader of the meditation up front was handed a slip of paper. He looked at it and kept meditating. But at the end of the meditation, when we stopped, uh, he announced that the bombing of Baghdad had just started, which was the beginning of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And um, coming out of that meditative state and uh, being present there, I had this deep sense of personal responsibility. Uh, I knew that my tax dollars had helped to pay for what was happening. I didn't know the, you know, the, uh, the right or wrong of it from a political or policy basis, but I just knew that I was connected to a great wave of suffering that was underway. Uh, and it experienced, I experienced that very deeply. And there was a, a guest speaker that got up after that and he said, uh, my heart is in my mouth. I am so deeply uh, touched by the events of this evening. I had intended to give a talk, but I'm going to just lead us in chanting to the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. And uh, that's the kind of energy of compassion within us all that comes out of the uh, Buddhist uh, tradition in the Sanskrit name. But it's basically the compassion that arises in all of us. So we uh, chanted for um, the time. Some people left because they had wanted to come for a talk, but others of us stayed. And I felt very moved that um, he would uh, express just from his own honest self of where he stood rather than thinking that he needed to fulfill what he had said he would come and do that evening. So I found he was teaching at another a Zen center uh, in Cambridge as well. I started attending those uh, sessions and have been studying with him ever since and have found that relationship deeply meaningful. Um, he's dedicated his entire life to uh, Zen and meditation. And over the years, uh, as I was engaged, um, he then invited me to participate in a, uh, a ceremony uh, where I took a series of precepts, commitments, um, not to kill, to steal, sexual misconduct, um, uh, speaking falsely of others and so forth. And um, in doing so um, was uh, recognized as a Zen priest. And he's also supported me in my teaching so that I host retreats and meditation gatherings. And he uh, supports me, works me, works with me, gives me ideas. And I, of course, draw from my own experience and from my own pretty extensive reading and study within the Buddhist and Zen traditions. So um, it's really with that basis that I use that term Zen priest. It's uh, really um, a recognition of a serious commitment to a spiritual path and the uh, traditions and the orientations that it brings. Wow. Okay, great. So there's two things that come to mind. I just kind of want to write, write a couple of notes down here. Um, you know, you talk about kind of exploring this in college and, you know, college really is an interesting time, right? It's like we're in there, um, we've picked a major, which means maybe we've picked a passion or a purpose. And, you know, we're really trying to figure out who are we going to be in the world and what are we studying for? And you reminded me that my very first real experience with meditation was in college. Wow. It was uh, my boyfriend at the time. I, I'll ha I should have... I have to ask him what book he read from because we're still really good friends. Yeah. And he um, brought a bunch of us into this guided meditation. And I was like, 
boom, right there. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was happening to me, but I had like this light come over me and I was almost awake for like 48 hours afterwards. And I remember I had to do like this big presentation for a class and I ended up presenting on this meditation that he gave, you know, <laughs> but it was like, I was filled with this energy and this wonder of life and mm -hmm. feeling really confused. Like, whoa, what was that about? Um, but yeah, I was kind of thinking like, yeah, when did I start getting into some of this stuff? And that was a real pivotal point for me in college as well was, you know, somebody reading this guided meditation. And then like, I, I was not sleeping for almost two days, and I wasn't tired. And I had this mm. beautiful energy inside of me that was just keeping me alive. <laughs> it, was, it was so weird, but so exhilarating at the same time. I find that uh, meditation uh, has been and can be in that way and also very plain. And uh, it can be simply sitting and nothing much happening. Uh, there's, I find very, very meaningful to have a regular meditation practice. I, I get up at five each morning and I generally meditate for 10 to 20 minutes uh, just after getting up. I found that was good. I was not keeping that regular uh, practice until I put a meditation cushion right under my bed and I made the discipline of doing it before even I turn on the lights to just get up and meditate the very first thing. And that constant uh, engagement in meditation certainly shows me that my moods go up and down and my life challenges come and go. And so it creates a stream of attention to the uh, the challenges and joys of life. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to um, ask you too was about that chant. Can you say the name of that chant again? Yeah, it was a chant to the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. Uh, and Bodhisattva means anyone who's uh, seeking the spiritual way uh, that's uh, on a path or committed to spiritual uh, growth and practice. It's a Sanskrit word that is used in the Buddhist tradition, but really is universal for anyone who's engaged in whatever way of looking for the deeper meaning of life or the deeper connection. Avalokiteshvara is a... Uh, then a kind of a representation of the energy in all of us of deep compassion, compassion for suffering in the world, compassion for other situations, compassion for ourselves. Uh, it's often represented as a um, female or androgynous uh, beautiful uh, figure, uh, but is not intended to be like a separate deity or God. It's really a representation of a energy form that goes through us and that we participate in. And so we were chanting um, to the um, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara to bring that heart of compassion forward uh, in a time of strife. Can you explain what happens in chanting? Because um, remember the first time I experienced it, that was also a really crazy experience. You know, it's like words that I don't understand, but yet there was a resonance and a feeling that was happening inside of me. It put me in a trance state. Um, more recently, I was having some strange medical things go on and I didn't know what was going on, but I immediately went to uh, one of my meditation apps and I just started looking for chants for healing because I know that they do something Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't really understand, um, you know, much about it yet, but I feel it like I don't mm -hmm. even know if I need to understand. There's a part of me that is very cerebral and I love to understand things. But I my intuition immediately said, look for chance for healing, healing of the physical body. And I had put one on and I probably after about 25 minutes of it, I really felt better. And I'm like, what is this about? So mm -hmm. can you explain that a little bit more for me? Yeah. Well, 
I think any kind of sound or musical energy um, enters us and aligns our internal vibrations. I think that's true in any kind of uh, musical form or format. And the um, work that uh, 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 chanting, I think, does is allows the um, uh, long traditions to come forward with a certain set of sounds that are uh, the ability to wake up and be present in the in the moment. So those kinds of sounds, uh, for instance, in the Hindu tradition, the, just the word Om uh, is often used in order to bring that presence forward. And because of the long lasting spiritual traditions over the years, uh, people have developed chants that are particularly designed to bring presence and peace. And so you see that throughout traditions um, in the world, uh, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, but also in the Hindu tradition, uh, in the Christian tradition, uh, there's a whole series of chants that come through the monastic traditions in Christianity. And they're designed really to uh, align and uh, bring current uh, our own energy and uh, can be very uh, deeply healing. Great, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I mean they they really are. I, I'm always surprised, you know. Or if I go to um, a kirtan or something, and they're you know doing these these chants, and I just like feel great. I feel very energized. You know, it's almost like getting a massage or sitting in a jacuzzi, and then you get out, and you're like, whoo, feel great. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, let's move a little bit to your book, Finding Zen in the Ordinary. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. You know, what is, what is the book about? And I know that it's connected a lot of your personal experiences, the work that you've done, and you're kind of like bringing that out in the world through this book. But tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah. Well, this book arose through my uh, ongoing practice uh, in, um, in Zen. And I found that I just started having an energy to write around it. And I started by just writing, uh, transcribing conversations I was having with my teacher, writing down ideas and thoughts. And I generated something like 400 pages of writing. And I realized it was totally unpublishable, but it was kind of a expression of just a lot of things coming up uh, out of me. Uh, and then I started to get uh, serious about trying to actually put together a book that I could share with others. I did quite a lot of reading on how to write. I, I don't consider myself a longtime writer or uh, a writer that knows much about writing, or at least at the time I didn't, and read lots of books to understand what writing is about. And one thing that was helpful to me was to realize that most all of the people who you would consider as great writers struggle when they write, that writing itself is an inherently challenging process. And that was comforting to me because it was very challenging for me as well. Um, and I spent, I think, four years uh, working on writing this book. It's short, you'll see it's uh, 48 short pieces. Uh, and it went through many iterations, uh, many edits, uh, to try to hone it down so that every word would count. And ultimately, what I have hoped to do with this is to create uh, a gift that people can receive. And that, in fact, um, I think unlike many books that are about the spiritual path, um, which give you uh, kind of instructions or guidance or suggestions, or here's what you might achieve, uh, here's what can happen, uh, this is intended to be a direct experience of uh, spiritual opening. So as one reads the, um, the stanzas and the uh, pieces, my hope is that it reminds people of their own inner experiences. It brings them into the present. It allows people to rest in the moment and, and open up. And so the uh, sharing of it or reading of it 
um, itself, I hope, will be an experience of, of spiritual awareness. Is there anything in your book that you'd like to share on the podcast? Is there kind of like one of your go-tos that if somebody were to be like in Barnes and Nobles and they pick it up off the shelf and they're just like <laughs> going through it? Because uh, I know you have your book there with you. Uh, is there anything yeah, that you'd like sure. to share? Yeah. Well, I thought perhaps maybe uh, one story uh, to, to read. I could read here. Um, it's called uh, Who Saved Who? I took the spring semester off in a year of college. Fully confused about my life's direction, I found myself back at my parents' house with no plans and nothing to do. My father, in his concern, found me a carpentry job with a middle-aged man named Jonas. Jonas had been out of work when a friend of my father hired him to repair a rundown colonial-era house. Jonas wasn't a carpenter by profession, but he was handy and had done repairs in his own home. I was also good with my hands, but uninitiated in carpentry. Jonas became my teacher. He showed me how to handle a cat's paw to remove nails, hold a plumb bob to find true vertical, and snap a chalk line. As we worked, we talked. Mostly, he talked and I listened. Not only did I learn about carpentry, I learned about how he had lost his family inheritance by trying to build a new tennis center. I learned how he needed willpower to avoid ordering a drink when we went out for lunch together. I learned how he felt when his wife got upset after he left unwashed dishes in the sink. And I heard his heartache when he spoke about his eldest son, who was often racked by mental illness. Jonas honored me with his teaching and attention. He wished to be good to everyone and suffered from feelings of falling short. My time with Jonas changed me. His counsel and care helped me return to college the next semester and led me to work as a carpenter after college for eight years. Decades later, I returned to attend Jonas's funeral. He had died of an aneurysm at the service, his four children talked about their father and how he had told them stories about tunnels under the lawn that led to magical places. His eldest daughter spoke to me after the service. You made a great difference to my dad, she said. That was a difficult time in his life. The way you listened to him when you were working together turned his life around he was able to get things back together. Wow. Beautiful. Who saved who, right? Or is that, is that what it was called? Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. Touching. Whew, that hit me right in the heart. Because yeah. <laughs> um, there's beauty in, you know, in what I hear in that really is like being the listener, but the way that you put it into words 
was like this quiet observation and seeing it more than a man, you know, talking about the argument with his wife Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe struggling with alcoholism or stuff. It's like Mm -hmm. you were able to see the deepness behind the story. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that short little thing that you just read, there is like everything behind it that you pulled forward. Wow. Mm -hmm. Intense, intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so why did you choose that one? Why is that one important to you? Well, I would say um, I chose it because it felt like it might be accessible for people who are listening and watching. Uh, it's a, a, a maybe a good one for entry. Uh, there's a whole range of different stories and I'd say that I love them all. And, uh, and, and, and also little vignettes and uh, realizations and things that are in the book. Um, uh, that one touches me a lot. It, it means a lot to me in terms of my own path. Uh, as I spoke earlier, the uncertainty in the college time. And uh, he was an important influence to give me courage to continue investigating and feeling that um, there was meaning to life. Really, as I've come to see it, it's not something you can necessarily write down, but it's meaning that arises just from the truth of our lives, from you and me talking to this this morning or from um, the way we carry forward in our daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that it reminds me of, um, probably just it's fresh in my mind right now because I'm doing a book club that is incorporating some of the Course in Miracles work. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so when you read that, it reminded me of what the Course in Miracles says about looking at every person as a holy encounter you know, kind of witnessing like the Holy Spirit being within them and like you're actually having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's what that really reminded me a lot of too. I um, have also studied The Course in Miracles. I have a my uh, uh, mother-in-law who's now passed away and her um, husband uh, who's still living were very um, invested in the Course in Miracles and I have read the books and studied them and have found them quite meaningful and uh, inspiring. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's really just is helping me, has helped me really shift the focus away from fear, you know, mm-hmm. and really being reminded that um, I'm loved. And actually the affirmation that I'm working on today is it's called kindness created me kind. Uh, and it's coming back to <laughs> kindness and, uh, you know, remembering that you came from kindness. And when you begin to judge others or, you know, you find that fear, that means like you're disconnecting from from the kindness from which you came from. So it's like always a returning back to. Mm. Yeah. And um, so I, I'd also like you to talk a little bit more about the dialogues that you have in the book with your Zen teacher, because definitely it sounds like you know, as soon as you met him, you had this pull and this call to want to study with him. I have teachers like that as well. It's just mm-hmm. like, yes, you know, teach me. It's, there's there's like a connection there, you know, with them. So, you know, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, what you've included in your book, you know, with him and those dialogues and maybe just some really things learning from him that really changed you. Yeah. I, um, as I'd mentioned, met him in 1991, but uh, I think 10 years ago, he offered to do weekly phone call uh, study sessions together. We spend about 45 minutes every week. Um, and we've been working through a whole series of uh, uh, formal Zen stories, which are teaching stories. Uh, but in the interactions we've had 
very wonderful back and forth. So it's been helpful to um, have somebody who's gone before me, had spent his whole life uh, invested in uh, practice and meditation, has lived pretty much his whole life in, in Zen communities or retreat centers. And he um, has shown me things I would never have seen on my own. Um, I was struck as I started working with him, he, he uh, would say to me, uh, let go of your complaint. And I would be surprised. I'd, I'd be, oh, I'm just telling you about this difficulty that I have, or I'm sharing with you um, problems that I'm facing with you know, my work or in my personal life. And, and yet I started to realize that I had an identity attached to my suffering. And it felt to me like I was um, defined by how I declared my suffering and what was my pain. And as I continued working with him, I realized that I uh, actually, that wasn't my identity. It was my identity is much more fluid. It's something fundamental and eternal. And all sorts of things pass by um, suffering and joy, um, you know, energy and exhaustion. And that, in fact, I uh, started to get much more clear that my, uh, uh, my origin, my resting place is something uh, way uh, uh, beyond and beneath any kind of definition of identity, my suffering, my history, uh, my profession, any of those things. And I'd read all of that before, but I think it's when I was speaking unconsciously and presenting myself in that way, and he would catch me and say, let that go, that it was where it was the teacher-student process acting, where I couldn't learn it on my own just by reading about it or just meditating on it. So there's a number of instances in the book where I include dialogues with my teacher, George Bowman, that um, were places where I felt like I had a deep realization, where I was suddenly aware of something that I hadn't uh, seen before. So um, that I thought was helpful to share with others, to see that uh, it's not that we're able to do this on our own. I think I had the thought early on is that I could meditate and uh, then I'd have these amazing awakenings and this would be all about sort of my practice and my experience. And what I came to see is that, in fact, I'm interconnected with all sorts of various people, uh, as you and I are this morning, and that it's only through those interconnections that our life really occurs. And so the teacher-student relationship has been a uh, wonderful way that that has kind of unfolded. Yeah, beautiful. And actually, it's funny, I have to pull up a, a quote that I just saw yesterday, because it's all in uh -huh. line with this when you talked about let go of your complaints. Um, I took a screenshot of this, it says, one of the best ways to know what your needs are is to look at what you complain about. Complaints are unmet needs in disguise. Uh, uh. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then another teacher, I was listening to another thing after this, and he was kind of talking about relationships and love. And he mm. said, a lot of times people fall in need they don't uh, fall in love, uh, you know? And then I see this and it's like about complaints are your unmet needs. And I'm like, oh yeah, we do go around in relationships sometimes like wanting the other person, like meet my need, fill my need, you know? Or if you were complaining, like you said about your job, it's like, what was it that your boss wasn't quite doing? Or what was it that the job wasn't fulfilling? 
you know, within you. And so, yeah, so I just have like these themes and now you're talking about it too. And yeah. you give that example. I'm yeah. like, okay, that's, that's interesting. This is all like in the forefront of my brain, wow. but um, yeah. What, what would you say about that too, just in regards to relationships and love and these needs or these complaints that we have, how have you learned, um, you know, through some of your practices to just um, navigate through relationships a little bit smoother? Um, when I, got married to my wife decades ago now, I think I never really examined that I had an underlying implicit assumption that one of her primary roles was to comfort me, to be there for me. And uh, I started to realize more recently, actually rather recently, which humbles me, that uh, my relationship with someone who is my deepest companion and my life partner is a uh, must needs to be uh, a deep commitment on my part to invest in and to provide for her needs uh, as actively and attentively as I can. I've, I've noticed it recently. We are often up in the morning making our lunch for the day at the same time. And, and, uh, and I think I, for years felt that, um, if I was going to the refrigerator and she was too, I would just sort of push in and try to get in to the refrigerator at the same time and you know, kind of jostle a little bit. I didn't think about it. I just thought, well, I'm busy and I have to get off to work and I'm just putting my lunch together. But recently I've been aware that, wait a minute, I can do something else for a minute. I have lots of different things putting my lunch together and let her do the refrigerator and then I can go when she's stepped away. It's the smallest little thing. I, don't th I haven't even mentioned it to her. But it means that we're not having these kind of underlying implicit conflicts in the way that we move through life. And it feels to me that there's so much that I have contributed to over the years of, in disharmony in our relationship that I'm trying to learn how to be much more fully harmonious by taking full responsibility for my role and, and how I fill my needs effectively, but also how I attend to her needs and what she needs too. And do you find that when you're in that awareness and like in that moment, like you just kind of step back that something unspoken is reciprocated from your wife? Mm. Well, I think our time becomes more kind of light and easy. You know, it's, it's like it, 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 it feels in a long-term relationship like that. It, it has slow patterns of leaning in a direction or another direction. And so the little events of irritation or, you know, lack of understanding build up over time and can compound. Whereas the little experiences of uh, a gift giving or offering or being attentive or watching out for another person's needs, again, build up over time and create a harmony and easy, easy and easier uh, frame. So I, I, uh, I think I'm these days trying to really engage and learn that to live well in the environment. And then, yes, I think it comes back to me. It's, it ends up making the whole environment. I mean, she says to me, uh, recently, uh, you seem to be so much nicer these days. <laughs> and, I, um, and I'm never quite sure exactly what I'm doing, but I think it comes from trying th this underlying attentiveness. Uh, and I'm not really sure, uh, I can't remember exactly this or that, that I've been that's nice, but I think she feels it, which is uh, a value to both of us. Yeah, I'd say so with a comment like that, being a woman mm -hmm. myself and just be like, huh, yeah, I'm noticing this. But yeah. really beautiful of her to actually speak it out loud because, um, you know, when I used to do a couples uh, therapy, um, I would really encourage couples to say that, like they'd be thinking things. Mm -hmm. And some of the women would say, 
okay, he's like really being attentive, but I don't want to say anything because I don't want it to stop. They were almost afraid that if they gave voice to it, that, you know, the man would realize and then like these actions wouldn't Mm -hmm. stop. And I'm like, no, I mean, the acknowledgement, the appreciation, um, you know, when that is spoken, that usually encourages people to continue. You know, it's really, I mean, to have that verbal communication. So really good for her too to actually, you know, acknowledge appreciation for whatever it is that was going on, you know, that you were showing her that she was feeling it. So I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. And also along with, you know, what, what I was listening to with another one of my teachers on another uh, podcast, uh, he was talking about that if at least one person in the relationship can maintain, he uses the words like more maturity, um, you know, more conscious maturity and can bring uh, more of a level of consciousness to the relationship that a relationship can usually do quite well. If you have two people, does even better, you know, that are very conscious in the relationship. But then if you have two people that are not, you know, conscious at all, and they're just kind of in that need state and in that complaint state, um, that that could be a little treacherous. And uh, those relationships tend to maybe not last for the long haul. But I also remember him saying, and what you said is uh, very similar. He said, you know, make it less about you and more about the other. Mm. Yeah. And it takes bravery. Tough. It takes bravery to do that. If one's going to be taken advantage of, or one's going to not get one's needs met, or or lose one's position, it's been surprising to me how challenging it is to uh, put the other person first. It sounds the, like the obvious thing, and it comes through all the spiritual traditions, but it's it's not easy in a daily life because there's a certain fear uh, or challenge. Uh, uh, that needs to be let go of, uh, that needs to be, you know, it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And I have found too, and maybe it's because, you know, things are fresh with working in the Course in Miracles that, you know, my ego wants to really shout and say, but what about me? Why do I have to be the one? Why, you know, if I make, if I, you know, put this person, it's all about them, but then, well, what about my needs and who's going to take care of me? And there's almost this fear of, well, I'll keep taking care of I'll keep taking care of others, but I won't be taken care of. Yeah. It's interesting. I, there's a, a practice in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition t- called the Tonglen pra- practice, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. And it's a practice of um, in relationship with someone else and meditating on that relationship, breathing in uh, the bad energy that's associated with the, en- the person or that you experience, and then breathing out good energy and sending it to them. Uh, and it feels completely counterintuitive because one starts ex- engaging in and experiencing the negative emotions and the frustrations and the anger or the irritations that come from that other person at times and absorbing them and bringing them in and then bring, breathing out uh, with a sense of love and equanimity and support for the individual. But what happens if you do it and practice it with, with faith and trust with, within the tradition, because it's been this is a practice that's been done for centuries, uh, what happens is your own inner being is strong enough to convert that energy. You start realizing that it doesn't overwhelm you. It's, it is an irritation, it is an upset, it is a bad energy, but it's nowhere near as strong as one's own center. And so it becomes almost just, oh, okay, that's there. And it also becomes, you get clear about the truth of it. It's like, yes, we do struggle. Yes, this person does get upset. Uh, and I draw that in and own it for a part of our relationship. And it completely switches around the sense that I need to keep that away because it might harm me. 
Now, I'm not advising this in situations that are truly, you know, dangerous or abusive or anything of that nature, but most of us live in much more subtle kind of dynamics around relationships uh, where this practice can be uh, really valuable and helpful. Yeah, I love the imagery of that too. And just the word that you used of us being strong enough to convert the energy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love that. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, too. Um, and I was also wondering, uh, because what I really liked in the beginning of what you said was with your meditation pillow, you take it out and you just sit for like 10 to 12 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that you said that because there's simplicity in it. And it's kind of like, you're not doing it for hours on end. And I think people get really tripped up with meditation. They feel like, I can't tell you how many of my students have said, I, April, I just can't meditate. Can't meditate, can't shut the brain off, you know, and for them to even sit in five minutes seems like torture for them. Yeah, yeah. And Deepak Chopra usually says, if you say you don't have time, you're the one that really needs to, <laughs> to meditate. And if you can't yeah. do five minutes, you probably need 15. Yeah. Um, but I like the fact that it's just a small, something small, simple, and somewhat quick. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering um, if we do have a little bit of time Is and you teach meditation classes, mm -hmm. is there like maybe something for two or three minutes that you'd like to lead my listeners in with um, mm -hmm. maybe just a small meditation that could be helpful that mm -hmm. if they are beginning and they're new that, you know, they doesn't even have to be 10 to 12 minutes, but it could just be something really um, short that maybe they can begin their meditation practice. Sure. Yes. So uh, what I would say to your listeners are to First, find uh, your, a balance in your seat or to sit in a way that you feel like you can be stable and upright, uh, that you can do the minimum amount of, uh, you know, uh, move motion because a, a stable and comfortable yet not sort of sleepy position is really helpful to still the mind uh, path as well. And then to uh, rest one's arms comfortably. There's different uh, hand positions or whatever, but you can just rest them comfortably in your lap. Uh, to, to sit simply. And then uh, often it's helpful to, uh, as we do in the Zen tradition, is to uh, close one's eyes uh, sort of halfway to look down a 45 degrees angle to the floor, although uh, one can uh, keep one's eyes uh, fully open or also close one's eyes. The value of, of having a sort of a half open eye meditation is that one stays present with this moment and made uh, by uh, experiences that may be kind of, uh, you know, astral travel or bright lights or various different things that can be in themselves uh, very attractive and engaging, but take you away potentially from just the presence of this one moment uh, as we bring it in our daily lives. And then a simple practice, which is very helpful, and I use it, uh, and I think people, both uh, beginners and very experienced uh, practitioners will use it, is to simply count to uh, 10 on the out breath. And so breathing in uh, and then breathing out, count one. Breathing in and breathing out, count two. And breathing in and breathing out, count three. And if you can keep doing that, I'll just say a few more words, which is that the intent of the breathing in and breathing out and counting is not to try to achieve some number of counts, but simply a device to stay present with one's breath. 
the breath is the gateway between the conscious and the unconscious. The breath goes on unconsciously. It's also something we can control consciously. So it sits at that gateway of consciousness and the unconscious. And it's, uh, as one counts one's breath, we all find that our minds lose track and go galloping off on some thought. And so for your uh, people who say they can't meditate, the fact is the mind going and galloping off is part of the meditation. You know, if one feels like I just can't stop my mind, it just keeps coming up with things. That's actually part of the meditation. That's actually what happens to all of us. The mind is like a vast lake with it never stops its ripples. It's constantly having uh, all sorts of thought forms come through. And so being present through counting of the breath stills one toward being present with the thought forms. And as the mind goes galloping off, one remembers and brings it back and counts again. Breathing in, breathing out, one. Breathing in, breathing out, two, and so forth. And I'll just allow us to meditate for a little while longer in that mode. And so the intent of this meditation is to have something very simple that one can do for three minutes. And in my experience, a meditation pretty much every day uh, is very different than a deep meditation for two hours um, in that the daily meditation allows us to see our lives as they keep changing and changing and changing. And every day one sits down to meditate will be a different experience. And bringing oneself with stillness to that different experience starts to give oneself perspective on how life is constantly a process of change. And those days of great happiness and joy change again and become days of concern and stress or sorrow and loss or uh, happiness for others. And it's a constant process of rotation. But the meditation, which can be a steady experience throughout it all gives one a sense that I am not any of these things. I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my sorrows, and I'm not my joys. I'm not my body, and I'm not any of these things. I am something which is unnameable, uh, and yet is entirely present and very straightforward that arises through my being. I am so glad I asked you to do that. <laughs> I just had so many aha moments. I can't even thank you enough. First of all, um, 
to practice with the eyes at a 45 degree angle. I am one of those people that will astral travel like immediately. You're absolutely right. I see the colors. I see the angels. I see this. I see that. I mean, I can go out of my body so quickly. And um, you're right. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's exploring. But you know, exactly what you said. It doesn't bring me into this present. I'm now like up and out and, you know, exploring other things. And sometimes I don't know if addicted is a good word to use, but you know, when you have those experiences, when I go into some of these deeper state meditations, it's like, Oh, I want that to happen again. Where am I going to go next time? So I really love that. Um, I meditate sometimes when I'm walking or in a store, like I always try to like come into a meditative state. I think, you know, part of my goal is to always be in that state if possible. So I feel like I'm always practicing it. Like people when I'm in public wouldn't know that I'm actually like focusing on yeah. my breath or I'm paying yeah. attention to my feet as I'm walking. Um, but I've never really sat with eyes, you know, open in that, in that gaze. So thank you. That's a gift that you gave to me. And I have never ever heard anyone describe the breath like you have that it is the gateway between the conscious and the unconscious mm. and then when you're like yeah the breath unconsciously is working for us i'm like oh my god i mean i've heard so many people say it's the breath the breath will bring you back to the present moment the breath is so important it's the breath of life it's what it keeps you alive but to hear that it's this gateway like all of a sudden just made mm. i don't know what just clicked but something big clicked for me so mm. thank you <laughs> for that. And I also love the simplicity um, of like breathing in one, you know, breathing out one, and then breathing in and then saying two, because some of the breathing techniques that I've been taught, maybe more in the yoga tradition or by my yoga teachers is like counting in for four, hold for four, out for four, you oh. know, or breathing in and counting out for 10, and then counting out for 11 and 12 and 13. But this just seems like it's just a nice flow and I'm not having to think about, you know, I don't know how, you know, holding the breath or mm -hmm. okay. Exhaling out and then breathe again on another number. So this was really cool. I really, really like this. Thank mm -hmm. you. Oh, good. I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, that that's so powerful. You know, the breath being the gateway. I thank you. I'm going to take that, teach that. And, <laughs> and now I want to let everybody know it <laughs> be like, listen, mm -hmm. have you thought about it this way? So <laughs> is that traditional in Zen teaching? Um, I uh, have heard it in different places in my uh, study. I don't recall exactly who said it when. <laughs> it's something that I think I learned so long ago. It's kind of uh, become just something I'm aware of. Yeah, uh, but it's 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 something I bring to my own awareness. That sense of uh, it does give a, a touch point to the unconscious and the conscious uh, intermingling. Yeah, and and really, I mean, for me, just solidifies the importance of it and how, mm -hmm. like, the breath really is is this beautiful gift that we have. So thank you. And so I'd like you to let um, my listeners know, you know, where they can find more information about you. And because you're so close to me too, you know, maybe when we all get to teach in person again, <laughs> um, you know, are, you know, are you planning on that for 2021? Are you waiting to see kind of what's going on with uh, COVID and, yeah. and, you know, I'd like you to kind of just share all that information where we can find you and come and learn from you. Thank you. Um, well, uh, several different things to, to know. Uh, my book is called Finding Zen in the Ordinary. Uh, it has a website, uh, findingzeninteordinary.com. Uh, and there's a contact page uh, in the website and 
people can contact me through that. So that would be one mechanism. Um, I have a Twitter handle at Chris Kevel. So that's at C-H-R-I-S-K-E-E-V-I-L at Chris Kevel. And my um, uh, uh, website is posted there too. So one could find a way to contact me in that fashion. Uh, when we get back from COVID, I will uh, have a uh, a sangha, a gathering of uh, uh, meditation practitioners uh, in the New Haven, Connecticut area. Um, the uh, name we will use is uh, Garden Oak Sangha, Garden Oak Sangha. And I think uh, shortly I'll be uh, getting a website up around that. And so that would be another way to be in touch, particularly around um, in-person events that might be possible for people in the area. And then I expect that uh, I do host uh, virtual um, you know, video um, meditations. And so if people get in touch with me, I can put them on, on a uh, mailing list to be notified when that happens. And typically I've been doing that uh, once a month for people in a video format. And also uh, we've been hosting gatherings on um, December 8th, which is uh, Day of Awakening. Uh, on April 8th, which is traditionally celebrated as Buddha's uh, uh, day of birth, and then my birthday, which is July 8th. And so um, those three days have been meaningful days for me, and I've been practicing for many years on those days and then host uh, gatherings for it as well. Wonderful. Beautiful. Well, I, I'm definitely going to sign up for your newsletter and um, I would definitely like to be a part of some of those videos and uh, learn a little bit more from you. So July 8th, does that mean you're a cancer in the I am. That's right. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. And you? <laughs> I'm an Aries. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. So fire and water, but yeah, um, yeah. some of the people I love most are cancers. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, they always... Yeah. yeah, they calm me down. <laughs> Cancers are just like always so chill. I'm like, yes. Um, so awesome. Well, Christopher, thank you. This really was a, a beautiful conversation and uh, so many takeaways. So this really just such a gift. Um, this conversation was for me. So thank you so much. And, you know, a lot of luck with your book, Finding Zen in the Ordinary People. Go out, get it. Um, and uh, yeah, and I hope to actually meet you in person because you're you're pretty close by. So that'd be lovely. Yeah. Yes. So okay. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank so you. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show. And don't forget to head on over to path11tv.com. Grab your annual membership for $59. Remember, that is 40% off the regular price. So I really want you to take advantage of our launch deal of $59. You get over 75 hours of content that we have on there. So head on over to path11tv.com. Take advantage of the annual membership. All right, guys, take care.